Okay, um, before we dive straight into the passage this morning, um, I want us to think about just a couple of sayings, things that we know really well um, that just feed in to where we are today. The first one is this, it says, do as I say, not as I do. Um, now, I don't know many of us have heard that or something similar in our lives. Um, I seem to remember my driving instructor used to tell me all the time, do as I say and not as I do. Um, and I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't know if that makes you feel inspired or confident or whether it's something that makes you feel a bit angry and a bit cross. Um, but when I look this up, interestingly, the phrase comes um, partly from comments made in the 1600s about preachers who didn't live out their lives in the way that they actually spoke about from the pulpit. And I guess we shouldn't be too surprised, really, should we? Because at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says about the teachers and the law and the Pharisees, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. The second saying is this one, actions speak louder than words. And it sort of builds a bit on the, on the first one. It gives us the idea that the things that we do can be more important than the things that we say. Now, we're going to come back a little bit later on to things that we say, because I don't want us to um, reduce the power of some of the things that we say, and it's important. Um, but we're looking at actions, because in the, in the main, what we say is about intention. It's things that we'd like to do. It's things that we'd like to see happen. It's things that we'd like to see change. Whereas actions are things that actually happen here and now. And it's often in those actions that our true selves um, are felt. So if you remember the story of the two sons in the Gospel, you remember the first said that he wasn't going to go and work on the vineyard and then he actually went. And the second one said, oh yeah, I'm going to go and work on the vineyard and never turned up. It was actually the first one who was um, praised for his action rather than the second one who was praised for his intention that never quite played out. Okay, so just by way of example, and sort of to show I haven't forgotten, um, 34 years ago today, Barbara and I were married. Um, yeah. Thank you. I think Barbara deserves more an applause than me. Um, now, for those of you who are good at maths and not forgetting the added pleasure of the odd leap year thrown in for good measure, that makes 12,419 days. Now, <laughs> poor Barbara indeed. If for each of those days I'd said how much I love Barbara, that would have meant something. But if I could demonstrate and find ways to demonstrate that I loved her, that would have meant so much more. Um, now, the bad news for Barbara is I'm not particularly good at either, um, but then it's still early days, isn't it, really? <laughs> so how do those, sorry, we'll take that picture off. How do those two sayings um, set the scene for today? Well, our title this morning is part of our Effective Church series, and it's about effectively leading by example. And it draws on those themes of being active and being consistent in the things that we say and the things that we do. Um, and the passage we're going to use comes from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10. I can see some Bibles being handed out if you want them. I'm also going to put it on the screen too, if you can read that as well. Um, so it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're starting at verse 1, and we just spill into, um, into a little bit into chapter 11. Okay, it says this, it says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own example, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, 
so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's really that last phrase that we're going to look at today. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, I don't know you, but I don't know many of us who want to see that on our tombstone. Here lays Alan, follow his example as he followed Christ's. Do I really want people looking at my life and saying, actually, that's an example? That's what I should be following. That's really quite frightening, isn't it? To see it's there. Because in reality, whether we like it or not, we are examples. We're an example to our family and our work colleagues and our friends. We're an example to each other in the church. We're an example to those that we share our roads with and those that we share life with. Whether we like it or not, we're an example. And we can't be able to follow or choose who is going to follow us. And we can't pick and choose the bits of our lives that we want people to follow. People will follow or not. So the focus I want us on this morning is not the, whether we're examples or not, but it's that type of example. Are we an example that actually we want to be followed? Or are we an example that's maybe just better ignored? And I think as mature Christians, we need to recognise and understand that the Bible, time and time again, urges us to be good examples. Just to pick out a few passages as we go. 1 Timothy 4.12, which we'll come back to later. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Philippians 3, 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you, uh, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 3 John 1.11 says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Titus 2, 7 and 8, In everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And Matthew 5.16 was the last one. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I could have picked dozens more. There are lots and lots of examples in the Bible where we are called to set an example, to be someone that people want to follow. So, okay, that's all fine, but what does it really mean for me? What does it mean when we take it out of the abstract and we try and put it into our own lives? What does that look like? Um, and I think there's two aspects that I want us to have a look at this morning. The first is that setting an example is a call to action. It's a call to do something. It's a call to actually be seen doing something, to work in partnership with God, to start to build up a catalogue, if you like, of positive actions and examples. And then that second is actually how do we become a good example, and, and that's when we'll return to 1 Timothy 4.12. So let us... Oh, we seem to have broken down. Would you mind moving us on one, David? No, we have broken down. Don't worry, we'll carry on for the moment and we'll see if we can get back to that. Um, so the call to action. To illustrate our call to action, let us turn to a, a really well-known Bible story, the feeding of the 5,000. It's in all the Gospels and um, the story has various different strands in each different Gospel and they're all brought together. So what I want to do this morning is use that as an example of this call to action, if you like. 
Um, So if you remember, just to set the scene, the miracle took place shortly after the beheading of John the Baptist um, and Jesus and some of the disciples went out onto the lake of Galilee and they went off to try and find a quiet place. They headed out for the far shore. Um, But they were seen. The crowd spotted them and the crowds followed them. So the crowds were coming round the side of the lake as they were going across the lake, if you can sort of picture that scene. And it must have been an amazing scene. We know at the end, don't we, that 5,000 men were fed. And by the time we add in the rest of the family members, there could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people possibly hoarding around the side of this lake like ants as the boat was going across. Now, we don't quite know where the boat left from and we don't know its, its destination, but the lake is about 21 kilometres long by about 13 kilometres wide. So, depending upon where they started and finished, that was some walk for these people who were piling around the outside. And it was no surprise, really, as the day started to draw to an end, that the disciples could see that they were beginning to get tired and they were beginning to get hungry. The disciples knew that they were in a remote place. They knew that the chance of getting food was pretty slim. So they did what many of us would do. They turned to Jesus and they said, you fix it. In the end, they they gave him some advice first, which is what many of us do. Um, But in the end, they left the actual action to Jesus. It was Jesus to do it. But Jesus' response... Oh, we're back on. Um, Jesus' response was possibly not quite what they're expecting. Jesus turned to them and said... You give them something to eat. 15, 20,000 people maybe. You give them something to eat. Now I don't know what would have happened to you then, but I guess my pulse would have started racing at that point. What was I going to say? What emotion was going through me? How was I going to respond to that from Jesus? Now we don't know how quickly or how slowly that response came back. But in the end, it was quite a defensive one. Philip turned around and said, it's going to be far too costly. You need at least half a year's wages just to give each person a bite. Evidently, and perhaps a little sadly, there wasn't going to be a human example to follow that day. Now, we know the end of the story, and we know the miracle that was performed by Jesus, and there are many other things that we can learn from it. But let's just spend a couple of minutes thinking about what the disciples were like. They were actually pretty well tuned in. They identified and recognised the need of the people that were around them. They appeared to empathise with the crowd. They seemed to understand some of the pain and the discomfort that they were going through. And then they realised they were out of their depth. And so their response to that situation was to hand it over to Jesus. Now, whilst that's never a bad response, in fact, it's always a good response, it may not always be the complete response. Because Jesus' reply to us could well be, You feed them. You feed them is that call to action. It's a call to each one of us through God's strength and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit to get on with building that back catalogue of examples. It's a call for us to work in partnership with God to see lives changed, to see his kingdom expanded. And our own situations might not be identical to those of the disciples, but they're actually quite similar. Quite often we'll identify needs and issues within our friendship groups or within our communities. We empathise with them, we understand some of the pain and some of the hurt with those situations bring. And then we'll often turn to God and say, please God, will you sort this? I wonder if we're ready for that reply from God that says, you do it. Let's think of a couple of examples. Let's say it's the person in my street 
who is lonely, um, who has no family. We're broken again, sorry, David. Who has no family and seemingly no friends to visit them, who is having little or no interaction with other people. We can pass that situation to God, asking God to comfort and encourage them, to help them not to feel lonely. But am I prepared for God to turn and respond to say, no, Alan, you do it. Or the person that's ill and incapacitated and finds it difficult to get out, to cut the grass or do the washing and the shopping. God, will you help that person? Alan, you do it. Or perhaps will we struggle with the larger issues of poverty and social injustice or inequality, the stewardship of earth's resources, the refugee crisis, wars, whatever it may be. So often our cry is that, God, would you do something about this? And what if God says, Alan, you do something? Or even where we long to see revival in our land and we pray for God to bring that revival and God responds, Alan, you're part of it, you do it. So as we transition, as we start to become a CIO next year, perhaps God is asking me, perhaps God is asking you to be involved in one of those ministry streams. Or maybe God is calling you to action in another area. If so, how am I going to respond? Is my response going to be defensive? A little bit like the disciples. I really don't have time at the moment. Oh, the situation is just too vast and too overwhelming. It's just going to be too costly and too expensive for me. Or can I respond a bit more positively? Can I be like Isaiah? Remember when he was called, said, here I am God, send me. Now granted that some of the situations we face may seem daunting and beyond our reach, probably like the disciples when they saw all all the crowd coming round the side for them. And granted, we we may not be the complete solution. But remember, we live with the power of God within us. That God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. So let's be positive. Let's think about what it is we can do and not dwell on what it is that we can't do. So why not revisit some of those situations and issues that burn in your heart and see if God is calling to you and insert your name now to do it. And then you can explore with God and with others what you can do in the sure knowledge that God promises to be with us until the very end of the age. So that's really the first thing I wanted to explore. This idea of being an example is a call to action, it's a call to do something, it's a call to be in partnership with God. And the second area I wanted to look at was to say, okay, so what sort of example are we supposed to be? Um, I don't think setting an example is just limited to doing the right things, but I think it's also about setting a good direction. It's about setting a path for others to follow in righteousness. And it's also about being a model, I think, um, for those other people to follow. And and just returning to our wedding day uh, anniversary once more, Barbara said to me the other day, she said that um, for most of our marriage, she said, I've been a model husband. You know, and I thought, "That's that's a great thing, isn't it? That's a really great thing to say. And I was on cloud nine for the whole day and so much so that I got to the end of the day and I thought, I really must look up what that means. And I looked up the word model and it said, a cheap plastic imitation of the real thing. (laughs) Um, Now, I don't think that's the sort of model that Paul's referring to um, when we get to Philippians 3.17 where he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
That sort of model is defined as a thing used as an example to follow or to imitate. That's the sort of model that we want to be. And I want us to turn to 1 Timothy 4.12 as the basis of considering that type of example that we should be. So if you remember, it says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Okay, so largely today we've spoken maybe about actions. Um, But what I said earlier on is I don't want to dismiss or deny the power of words because words have an ability, they have a potential to build up or to tear down, to encourage and inspire or to diminish and hold us back and shackle us, if you like. Um, 28th of August 1963 was the date when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech where amongst other things he dreamt that his four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. Those are words which helped inspire a generation of both black and white people to fight against those injustices of the time and they were a rallying call really to the supporters of desegregation and a catalyst to the civil rights movement that started in 1964. Coming forward a bit, in September 1988, Margaret Thatcher made a speech in Bruges where she put forward her vision of Europe, saying, let Europe be a family of nations relishing our national identity no less than our common European endeavour. Words that crystallised into a notion maybe of Euroscepticism, a topic that we just can't seem to get away from even today. On the 11th of September 2001, just a few hours after terrorists had flown planes into the Twin Towers, George W. Bush addressed the nation with these words, a great people has been moved to defend a great nation. These words started the war on terror, a war that has, been, has had the most profound impact around the globe, as we see a refugee crisis bigger than anything since the Second World War, a word on our very doorstep. Now many of us through our lives have been supported by words of encouragement. We've been lifted up. Um, we've been encouraged to do things, to to go on and do things, but I'm sure there are other of us who carry scars of unkind or discouraging words that have been spoken over us. Words that maybe shackle us or hold us back. And if that is you, I really want to encourage you to see the guys for prayer at the end of the service, because I believe that God can free us, Jesus can free us from those shackles of those negative words that have been said over us. Um, There are many Bible passages in James and Proverbs that warn us to guard our tongues and be careful about the things we say. So let us set an example in speech. Let our speech be positive and inspiring and uplifting. Let us speak plainly and openly, not shirking from what needs to be said, but doing so in a gentle tone of encouragement, even where our words are justifiably those of rebuke. So the second thing it says in 1 Timothy is in conduct. So, set an example in love, set an example in conduct. Um, And as we've already said, words are often ideas and messages of intent, but to have real meaning, they have to be supported by actions. Um, If Martin Luther King Jr. had done nothing either before or after that great speech, probably the words that he'd spoken on that day would have been irrelevant and probably would have been forgotten by now. It was his actions which gave him the platform from which to speak. It was his actions that gave him a credibility to address the crowd on that day. And no one, least of all a Christian, should enjoy that tag of being a hypocrite. Remember that saying, do as I say, not as I do, was thought to have resulted from preachers not acting out the words which they'd spoken from the pulpit. 
And remember also that once you've nailed your Christian colours to the mast, many people will be looking more closely at your actions to see whether they can indeed throw that criticism of hypocrite at you. But what is the conduct that we're trying to model? I think it can be very easy, can't it, to confuse a Western middle-class standards and values with those of the radical life of Jesus. Although that we are told, as far as it's possible, live at peace with others, there will be times when our conduct will be considered to be offensive or plain rude. There will be times when we have to swim against the tide of all the other people around us. There will be times when we're going to be asked to challenge the conventional wisdom of this world. And why is that? Because we're called to follow the example of Jesus, who was sometimes considered rude, who often challenged conventional wisdom as he turned much of society's thinking on its head. So in speech, in conduct, in love. We know, or we should know by now, that love rests at the very heart of the gospel message and that setting a good example in love is arguably more effective than anything else that we're going to be able to do. It not only sets the example for others to follow, it's a witness, isn't it? We read the passage earlier on, um, which goes on to say that all men will know you are my disciples if we show love for one another. It's a great example. It's not an easy example. It's sometimes costly, maybe financially, maybe emotionally. And generally, it tends to be sacrificial. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, sorry, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that without love or anything else, we do or are or say is nothing. It's all meaningless. All that back catalogue of good stuff that we've done counts for nothing if we don't do that in love. And then he goes on, doesn't he, with these words, well known. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And if that wasn't tough enough, we can then go on in Romans 12 and read this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Wow. Wow. They are lifetime challenging verses, aren't they? They are verses that we need to come back to time and time again as we seek to set an example in love. I look at those lists and think, crumbs, am I this? And for people who follow, no, nowhere near. But we need to keep coming back to those verses and to be reminded that that is what we need to do. An example in faith. Um, Hebrews 11 says that now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then it goes on in verse 6 to say, without faith it is impossible to please God. And maybe what could be a better prayer than the one set out in Ephesians 3, 16 to 19 that says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And finally, from 1 Timothy 4, the last one says impurity. Now, purity tends to be the absence of any contaminants or pollutants. So, when you turn on your tap at home, when the water comes out, it's gone through a purification process. All that stuff's been taken out, isn't it? Um, And if you think of the old way that gold was refined, they put it all into a fire with tremendous heat and the impurities would separate from the gold and you'd be left with the pure gold in the end. I think in human character, purity applies to the absence of any vices. Uh, It means to be free from guilt or to be free from evil. It has nothing to do with age or standing, but it has everything to do with character and choice. Um, The well-known German philosopher Nietzsche said that one must be a sea to receive a polluted stream without becoming impure. So in other words, no person's mind is large enough to absorb all the incoming rubbish, maybe without becoming polluted. And part of being pure is understanding what it is that we allow in things that we see, so we allow into our bodies. Um, There are times when we have very little choice, isn't it, over what things that we see or hear or read, but there are other times where we do have a choice. And where we do, we should exercise that choice wisely. Um, We're reminded, reminded of that passage in Philippians 4. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I think if we set our hearts and minds on those sort of things, it will help us to, again, be able to set an example of purity. So those five things from, um, from 1 Timothy 4, speech and conduct, love, faith and purity. Those are the things that we're called to set an example for. Those are the things that we want to see other people seeing in us and then being prepared to follow. So in conclusion, what can we say? We are all examples, whether or not we like it or not. Um, the Bible encourages us to be good examples, to be examples to each other. Being a good example often requires us to do something. It's a call to action. To live as a good example may require new or even raised standards in our speech, in our conduct, in our love, in our faith or in our purity. And overarching all of that, we need the Holy Spirit's changing and challenging power to help us. I stand here this morning very, very uncomfortable suggesting that anyone should follow my example. But what I do say is I strive to follow the example of Christ and trust that his changing power will work in me to make me a better example for others. And I guess that's a prayer for all of us this morning. So should we just close in prayer before I ask Katie to come back for us? Father God, firstly, I just want to thank you for the example that you have set. Uh, Lord, in all those things that we have spoken about today and the examples that we've seen, It is your example that we examine to follow. And Lord, as we examine what you did in the Bible, we examine your life, we examine those things that you stood for, those things that you thought were important. I just pray, Father, that those same things will be important to us. I pray, Lord, that we will think about speech and purity and love and faith and conduct 
in the same way that you did. I pray, Father, we'd stand up for the same causes that you did. I pray, Father, that we would show the same love that you had. I pray, Lord, that we would be examples, not only for each other to follow, but for the world to look on and see and to want to follow too. So, Lord, we just pray now that your spirit will help us, Lord. We pray that your spirit will change us, that your spirit will refine us, that those impurities will be burnt off, that we will be people who desire to follow you and to become more and more like you. Father, I pray if we've had words spoken over us that do shackle us or hinder us, Lord, I just pray that they are removed. I pray that those shackles are freed and that actually we can be free in your name. And Father, we would just ask that you would break through anything that is stopping us um, from having that relationship with you or is holding us back from doing those things that you would want us to do. Lord, we hand our lives over to you again. We ask that you would refine us and change us and make us examples for others to follow. Amen.